0: Draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant on Zoomer Radio. A high school dropout at 15, deported
1: twice from the United States. He is recognized as the godfather of reality television for his role as the creator, producer, co-host, and writer of the trend-setting hit Real People. He also won five five Emmys uh, along the way, uh, and he also... uh, rub shoulders with the great late district attorney from new Orleans, Jim Garrison, of course, who uh, prosecuted Clay Shaw for conspiracy to kill president Kennedy. How did that happen? How did you hook up with the, uh, I mean, I know, you know, you have vivid memories of the JFK assassination uh, and that stuck with you. I have vivid memories of almost everything,
2: but again, that was a happy accident. Uh, in uh i I talked to him on the phone when I tried to book him on my show in nineteen seventy um I had just come off of doing a talk variety show for Channel Eleven because when Werf Griffin left Westinghouse he he recommended me as a replacement. I filled in for him one night, and my numbers were so good. Westinghouse used my ratings to go to negotiate David Frost's money down because they wanted David Frost. So they hired David and Chuck Young, who was a general manager at Metro Media, said that guy's gonna fail. Come out here and do a show for us. Well, I did that show for a while, and then it, it was over with because that show business. At, in nineteen seventy when John Kennedy was killed, a company could only own five television or five radio stations or five newspapers. Now, the worst president in American history, Bill Clinton, changed all that, where now five or six corporations own 95% of all of America's media. And I'm hoping that Donald Trump will, like Kennedy, sign an executive order and have that reversed. But we haven't seen yet that yet. But in any event, in Los Angeles... At the t- in the country, there were 1,500 different owners of television stations. So they could be challenged by local groups. And in Los Angeles, they were being challenged by the Chicanos. They were marching by the thousands almost every day because they wanted representation on Channel 7, which was the ABC station. They wanted more representation in city hall and city government. Most of all, They wanted supervision over the L.A. Police Department because they felt they were being unfair. So you could be successful and challenge a license. So KABC decided to get rid of their morning show, and they were going to do a news information show, a live 90-minute news information show. The one that everybody thought would get the show was a fellow named Mario Machado, one of the most handsome men you've ever seen in your life with a great voice. The best-known announcer in Los Angeles. He announced everything. And everybody thought because he was Chicano and Chinese, he was everybody's ethnic, that he would get, a, get the job. He saw me working at a place called the Ice House, working on material with Steve Martin. And afterwards he calls me aside and he said, "Hey John, you should audition for this show that I'm auditioning for." And I said, "That AM show they're talking about?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "Yeah." I said, "Well, you know you're going to get it, Mario. I mean, it's made for you. Look at you, you're the best-looking guy in town, the most popular Hispanic in town." He says, but John, I can't ad lib. I can only read. You do all this political stuff so you know about the news. Here's the guy's name. It's Brad Lockman. Give him a call and see if he'll audition you. So I called Brad and I went in there and there were about 25 other people that are going to be auditioned. And I won it. And when I got the show, I became the first person in television to review movies in television, in television. I was the first person in LA to open up phones because we were live so people could. Talk to the guests. All of this was fought by the general manager, a guy named John McMahon. He thought uh, uh, people who live in Los Angeles were dumb. They weren't smart like they were in San Francisco. But I did it anyway in spite of that because we we were live and he couldn't stop it. I put Muhammad Ali on the air when only Howard Cosell would put him on the air. Because he said, I'm not going to kill yellow people. I only have problems with white people. We put Jane Fonda on when they called her Hanoi Jade. So we had this great show. But there was a thing called the Fairness Doctrine. So I couldn't, you could never have a Rush Limbaugh or O'Reilly or any of these people who do our shows that are either, most of them are all right-wing conservatives or liberal. Because you'd have to, you just couldn't do it. So I had to be sort of devil's advocate. Anyway, I'm doing the show. And to me, the Garrison thing and the Kennedy thing didn't mean much. I only had one comment about Jim Garrison is that he arrested Clay Shaw in 1967. And I saw the newscast, which is in the film, by the way, the newscast where he says, We have solved the crime, the Central Intelligence Agency did it, and there will be convictions when we go to court. And I thought, wow, this is thrilling. But for two years, he never got to court because the U.S. government stood in his way and the media through Project Mockingbird was standing in his way. I didn't know that at the time. But I said to some friends that I lost, hey, if this guy's got nothing, why don't they get out of his way and let him fall in his face? So anyway, January 29, 1969, he takes Clay Shaw to court. Serendipity. The day my son was born, again, a happy accident because I never wanted a child because I didn't think I'd be a decent father. But if there's such a thing as reincarnation, I want to come back as my son because he had the best <laughs> father and mother that anybody ever had. So he, it's announced that he loses the case. As Richard said, it was a conspiracy case. I'm in a bookstore. It's called Edmund's Bookstore, and it's on Hollywood Boulevard across from Musso and Frank. And I see this book called Heritage of Stone and there's the author is Jim Garrison. Could that be the same guy? So out of curiosity, I just pick it up, I look at it and I'm stunned at what I'm learning right away that he had to sue Time Life, the owners of the Zapruder film, in order to get the film and they said no and it went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court finally ruled in Garrison's favor. And then there was this... Doct- uh, this uh, forensic pathologist, the only one at Bethesda who was in the autopsy room. He is called by Diamond, who was Shaw's defense attorney, as a defense witness to talk about the bullet in the back of the head. And he plagiarized himself by saying that. But nobody knew at the time he plagiarized himself. But under cross-examination. And it's not by Jim, because he never cross-examined anyone. He had a great staff, and he trained them well under cross-examination. He has to admit there was no autopsy. First of all, it was prevented by admirals and generals. One of the generals might have been a guy named Curtis LeMay, who was well-known for hating hating Kennedy because he wouldn't nuke Vietnam. I mean, it was he's like Dr. Strangelove and the FBI agents. But then he goes on to say they wouldn't let us even look at film. They wouldn't let us look at x-rays. So there was no autopsy. Now the court is hearing this. And then Garrison's uh, uh, Garrison's attorney brings out the Warren report and shows it to the jury. Do you see any x-rays here? Do you see any pictures here? You know what you see, folks? You see two cartoon drawings of a head drawn in pen and ink with a bullet going through the back of the head and out the front and supposedly through Connolly. Now it's a magic bullet, 399. Magic bullet that has almost nothing missing from it. There is more lead in Connolly's wrist and leg than, than there are. And, and, and so it's impossible that that be true. Anyway, what Garrison was after was not the conspiracy case. And the reason he arrested Shaw, was after Ferry, but Ferry committed suicide, left two suicide notes. And Garrison said, I don't want to find two more suicide notes. So he knew that Shaw was Clay Shaw's handler, which he which he was. And then there was a handler above that who was David Attlee, David Attlee Phillips. So that's why that's why he arrested him. He's trying to get him for perjury. And the jury in eight minutes found him guilty of perjury found him guilty of perjury. And here's something else that you didn't know about Garrison, who was so thorough. He not only go, did he go through a grand jury, he had a jury, he had a three-judge panel set up to read the, because Diamond wanted to introduce the 26 volumes of the Warren Report as evidence that, that, that Kennedy was killed by one person, Lee Harvey Oswald. Three judges. Ruled it inadmissible, and you know what they called it? They called it hearsay because a Warren report was never an investigation. Nobody ever heard of that. They never heard that Jim Garrison won the perjury case, and then the government steps in and refuses to let Jim Garrison bring Clay Shaw to trial for what he would have gotten ninety nine years. And if you're about to take a break, I have something. I want to add to all of this. We
1: will. And uh, let me just remind uh, people about the uh, the book signing. John Barber will be attending, a, as I say, a book signing at Conspiracy Culture. That's happening uh, one week from tonight, Sunday, October the 6th. And that's taking place, again, Conspiracy Culture, 1605, Queen Street West, booth number five. That's Conspiracy Culture, Sunday, October the 6th. And that, again, is 1065 Queen Street West. And uh, what time again is that, John? It's 1130 to 130. All right. And you'll be taking lots of questions about JFK uh, and Whatever Garrison they want you to talk
2: about. I just love to talk to people. And I don't just sign my name to the book. I'll find out something personal about
1: them and write them something personalized. All right. Uh, let's take another time. i come back and finish up with uh, John Barber and Jim Garrison right here on The
0: Conspiracy Show. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zuma Radio. Suicide.
1: We are back with John Barber talking about Jim Garrison. You interviewed Garrison in 1970 on your L.A. show. No, no. No. I, I, uh, 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 Oh, uh, let,
2: let me get to the business of the book. I tried to. What happened is I was so excited by what I was reading that I called him to book him on the show. And I thought a secretary would answer. And this bass baritone voice said, hello. And I said, could I speak to Mr. Garrison, please? And the voice said, speaking. And I got all excited. Oh, my God, Mr. Garrison, I just finished reading your book, Heritage of Stone. And he laughed and interrupted me. He said, oh, you must be the other one. I only sold two copies. <laughs> well, you got to love somebody like that. So I finally talked to him. He said, you're not going to get away with it, John. They're not going to put me on television. I said, listen, we are live. I had all Ali on and Jane Fonda and all these controversial people. He said, John. They're not going to put Jim Garrison on the air to talk about the CIA murdering the president. I said, we're going to talk about your book and the case and the stuff that came up in the trial. These are facts, okay? And then I'm going to open the phones for an hour and we will be jammed. I finally talked him into it. So while we're talking privately, he says, you know, John, it's 1970, six years after the Warren report, and you know that a recent Harris poll said that 83% of all Americans, don't believe to this day the Warren Report or that Lee Oswald did it or did it alone. And I said, well, if so many people know that, why aren't they marching in the streets? He said, you didn't see the second question. And I said, what was the second question on this Harris poll? The second question was, would you like to see a deeper investigation, a second investigation, this time investigating the FBI and the CIA? And only 21% said, yes, John. So what does that say about Americans? I don't know where it came from, Richard, but I said, Mr. Garrison, I know what it says to me. I know what my mother and father did in the rumble seat of the car or on the pool table or on on the bar stool or in bed to conceive me. But don't ever tell me my mother's not a virgin. Well, he howled and he said, God, you sound like my second, my favorite writer. My very favorite is Shakespeare, but my second is Mark Twain. And Mark Twain said, it's easier to fool people than to convince them they have been fooled. And John, we had been fooled since November 22nd, 1963, but I'm thrilled to do your show. I was fired the next day. And he was canceled. Now, I must tell you, I didn't think it had anything to do with my conversation about the assassination. I'm in show business, Richard. You know, I was the opening act for Bob Goulet, and I was the opening act for Bobby Darin. You know... And you only work two weeks or a week, or you get 13 weeks if you get a show. Nothing is permanent show business. So I thought nothing of it. And because I was the first to do movie reviews in television, I ended up being signed by uh, LA Magazine for 10 years to do their reviews and started doing them on Chat 11. So I had another job and never thought about it. But I'm going to tell you something that is very, very important. There's a fellow you, you've heard Donald President Trump talk about the fact that Congress uh, ruled that the CIA files and the murder of John Kennedy were to be released in October. Right. Well, there's no way they're ever, ever, ever going to be released because the CIA so far has talked President Trump out of that. So they're not being released. But a fellow named Jefferson Morley who knows as much about the assassination as almost anybody, Mark Lane or May Brussels. May Brussel was by far the best researcher in the world. He brought suit against the Central Intelligence Agency seven years ago to release not the CIA files, but their files of Jim Garrison's. Because you and I know that intelligence agencies talking code. You can't garrison's files because garrison named names. He had the amounts of money, the shooters, where the money went to. I mean, he had everything. And, And about six or eight months ago, they ruled, the judge, the courts in D.C. ruled against Jefferson Morley, said you're not getting garrison's files. And guess who the judge was? Kavanaugh. Appointed by Trump to the Supreme Court. And you asked this great question of me during the break. What's going on here? And that is is the question. What is indeed going on here? Now, there's a possibility if Donald Trump gets a second term, it doesn't augur so well for him now since Netanyahu lost because Netanyahu was running around Israel with him in a picture with Donald Trump (laughs) and they voted against him. But I think Trump has a very strong chance of winning in 2020. And if he does, he may reverse the Communications Act and he may literally force them to open all the files, but you're going to find nothing. There are 67 Clay Shaw files, and I have them. How? How did you get them? I got them through a very, very, very close friend. Now, when Jim Garrison lost, his job as a DAA. He won the second, ter- the second time he was running, it was a slam dunk w- win. He could still investigate the CIA. He was free to do that. So they did everything to destroy him, and they did destroy him. They tried to entrap him, and then he lo- his marriage was destroyed, and uh, that uh, th- that piano players. Uh, There's a piano player from New Orleans, who's Harry Connick, his father. His father beat Garrison and ordered all of Garrison's files destroyed. But a patriot cop copied the files. And that's how the files are retained today. And there's 67 of them. So when I heard that Kavanaugh said no and that Trump was not hammering the CIA, I said, you know what? I owe it to the memory of Mr. Garrison. And I owe it more to America that gave me a home and gave me a family and gave me a job to know the truth about Mr. Garrison's case. I'm going to start to release the file. So if you go to my website, which is www.johnbarbersworld.com, not only can you see free the first documentary, The Garrison Tapes, there are five files that have been released And they're all about six to eight minutes. You could watch those five files, Richard, and never read a Mark Lane book or see an Oliver Stone movie or a John Barber documentary and know that Jim Garrison solved the case. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the first one
1: that went out. You'll do that when we come back. The Clay Shaw file. We'll get into the Clay Shaw file and the Garrison tapes. On the other side, John Barber stays with us. Now, how can you leave? You can't. It's
0: that simple. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant from Zoomer Radio.
1: All right. A few moments remain with John Barber, the godfather of reality television, the creator, host, producer, writer. You mean, it's five to two already. It's it's ten to one. 10 to 1. 10 to oh, 1. Oh my God. You're still on I, Vegas I, I time. That's all right. Ten, okay, we
2: got 10. I can <laughs> okay. tell you. Two we're talking
1: qu- about the Garrison tapes, and you were going to tell – these files, you have them in your possession. I, uh,
2: yes, and I felt that uh, it was my obligation to the country that brought me in and gave me a life and a great family, gave me everything, to know the truth because that's what America was built on. So I began releasing a few months ago the Garrison files. So if you go to my site. You can see them for nothing. And and what I do, if let's say there are 50 pages on one guy, which is Clay Shaw, there was like 130 pages on Shaw, I'll pick eight, eight or nine things up that are important. But I will put up there all of the documents so those of you who are patient and want to read all of them can. Here's something about Clay Shaw and why he would have been serving 99 years in prison. First of all, we found proof, of course, he was with the Central Intelligence Agency, but at the time, Garrison couldn't prove it in a courtroom. But in the perjury case, guess what he had? A guy named James Whalen, a murderer, is offered $25,000 by Clay Shaw and David Ferry to murder Jim Garrison, 10000 down and $15,000 afterwards. And what happens is that Whalen thinks about it, but can't do it. It's the DA, and he's fighting the government. It's just too big for me. So he goes to Garrison, and he said, give me anything you want, and I will sign it. And what it was, he said, Mr. Garrison, I thought of shooting you, but not for the money. My daughter is deathly ill. And Clay Shaw promised we would have the best doctors in the entire country cure my daughter. That's all they needed. The other thing is a a teacher, uh, a professor from the university in Chicago, said that his best friend lived with Clay Shaw for one year and then had a transsexual operation to become a woman. And Shaw kicked her out when she became a woman. And he, there are 22-year-old male hookers talking about the deviant homosexual acts they performed with Shaw, with Ferry, and with Oswald. Now, does a guy like Clay Shaw, who's a revered businessman, want the jury to hear about his real life? No. And James Garrison had this slam dunk case. And what happened? The government knew this and stepped in and stopped it. And then Shaw conveniently died. Now, when we release the Oswald files, what you are going to see in that also are pictures of the fronts of some newspapers that describe two shooters. And those disappear. But this is the most interesting thing to me. Lee Harvey Oswald is in Chief Curry's office. And there are a dozen and a half Stetsons and guns in that office. And there's no stenographer to take notes. And Curry said we couldn't afford a stenographer and there was no room for a tape recorder. Now, you all know that's a bunch of hooey. But so he's in there for like eight hours. So if he's there for eight hours, what are they talking about? Can he be confessing for eight hours? And Garrison found a guy who was in there at the interview. And Garrison said, what did they ask? And the guy laughed and he said, what they did not ask was, did you shoot Don Kennedy or did you shoot Tippett? And of course, he couldn't have shot Tippett. He had a revolver and it was an automatic that killed Tippett and 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 Garrison said, what do you mean they didn't ask? He said they were prevented. Those who wanted to ask some of the real detectives were stopped by uniforms and suits, because if if Oswald obviously heard some guy say, did you shoot the president? You know that he's going to say, I'm a patsy. I work for the CIA and the FBI and I can prove it. They didn't want him to say that. So everything was about nonsense. 8 hours of nonsense. All these documents and there the and there are 5 of them. And in November, uh I'm going to put out the 6th one because everybody who is knows anything about this uh, and uh, uh, uh devil's chessboard and stuff like that. Is that the architect of the assassination was quite obviously Alan Dulles, who was fired by John Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs. And then, of course, appointed to head up the Warren Commission to prevent an investigation into the CIA. And that's why it was held in secret for nine months. And Mark Lane said if this had been a rape case or a pedophilia case, you'd have had the New York Times and the Washington Post say, hey, open this up. This is a murder of the president of the United States, and they make it secret. Alan Dulles was a hireling. He was the head of the CIA because he was appointed. And you have to be appointed by from above. And what I'm going to do on November 22nd is Jim Garrison said this to me privately. I didn't put it in the documentary because he couldn't document it. But it was the research that he did. He said that Alan Dulles got the go-ahead from one of the ruling families of the United States who had a high position in politics in this country. And then he named the guy. And I've done considerable research on it, and there's absolutely no question that Jim Garrison is probably right. So, the sixth file uh, that I'll release will be about that. It will be called the Garrison file, even though I do not have the file. It's just my conversation with Jim. And uh,
1: that's going to be released, released on the website John Barbers World. Dot .com yes that'll it'll be, be on youtube november the 22nd november 22nd essentially you'll be naming the the person who greenlit the assassination yeah, because
2: you know and what uh, it's just you know what you have seen 50, you probably saw people signing petitions about 8 months ago oliver stone and and uh, martin luther king's children and some of the kennedys a uh, petition they presented to congress i mean It's toilet paper to Congress. They didn't even read the Patriot Act when when the Oklahoma office building was blown up, and they just passed it. And more and more and more, what Snowden left the country for and what Julian Assange has been warning us about has been coming true. We're living in a Norwellian United States of America. And let's just hope it doesn't happen to Canada. I heard somebody the other day; they were they were sort of arguing over the fact that some of your media was talking about uh, uh, Trudeau and the fact that he put on blackface at one time or another. You got a you got a prime minister that put on blackface. We got a guy running around with an orange face. But in in a, in any event, somebody said, you know, that's the terrible thing that's going on now. It's the Americanization of our Canadian media.
1: Well, <laughs> perhaps. Perhaps, uh, listen. Uh, you uh, have done an outstanding job with this uh, book, and I, I can't thank you so much for coming in. I can't thank you enough, and we have to do it again. Uh, I know you're going to be in town for a while. Let's uh, let's see if we can cobble something together, John. What a what a pleasure meeting a true television pioneer. Oh well, thank you so
2: much. I deeply, deeply appreciate that. I love to listen to stories, I love to tell stories, and the audience didn't know, but during the break, you were telling me some of your stories, which I hope you broadcast, because they're wonderful. And I look forward to meeting anybody who comes to the bookshop, 11.30 to 1.30 on Sunday.
1: Thank you all. Thank you. My, uh, my thanks to Owen Wolf, and I'll be back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known, What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night.
0: Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. So little time. So much to tell. John Barber is here. Uh, so, we were talking about you, uh, your botched attempt at escaping from Terminal Island, and, uh, and eventually, you know, you are shipped back, and then you're worried about ever getting back in. Uh, and that's where we come, kind of, circle back to your old childhood friend, Mel Nixon, who you grew up with, I guess, on Lawler Avenue here in Toronto. And... Um, but before we get to the story where you actually go, uh, you you need to enlist Mel's help uh, to help you get back into the United States because you're just going crazy. It's not
2: again. really help; just a uh, collaboration. Right. it
1: Just uh, 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 verifying what I was saying was true. But before, but before we get to that story, yeah. uh, while we're on the subject of Mel Nixon, I just this is to me is a classic piece of Canadiana for those of us who love hockey.
2: Oh, I'm a junkie. Do you remember the one I love more? You know, when I would go to Maple Leaf Gardens, I'd go every Saturday night, spend fifty cents, standing room only. Right. There was one guy always at the far left end who would holler, "Come on, Teeter," Ted Kennedy. <laughs> yes, yes. But me, I always ho- always hollered. Come on, Wally. I'm just a kid. It was Wally Stanowski. Ah, Wally One Stenowski. of the best skating defensemen
1: I ever saw.
2: I can remember all their names.
1: Ah, for me, it was, come on, Mike Pellick. But that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so you and Mel were, you, you played a lot of road hockey together. Yes, we did. And, uh but he had occasionally would, you know, kind of, sort of aggressive outbursts with you and one time because you decided to fix Because I was a much something.
2: better hockey player. Mm. I was, that was my first dream to be a hockey player and the reason I lost that dream was in the sixth grade. We had a very young, very beautiful teacher named Miss Britton. And one day she said uh, to the class, all of you are going to stand up and tell me what you want to be when you grow up. And kids would have got to say, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a fireman. I want to be a nurse. Always got applause. Came to me. I stood up and said, I want to play hockey. And she said, nobody ever made a living playing hockey. And the, the kids booed me. They literally booed me. So I started rattling off the name of every hockey player playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And then the Montreal Canadiens. And then the Chicago. And she said, shut up, shut up, shut up. And I was so discouraged. I gave up the dream of ever playing hockey just because of, just because of her. But in any event, I was really good. And especially at street hockey. And I could outscore Mel even though he was tougher than me, and he would usually hit it wasn't just a body check it was he would hit me i mean he would literally punch me sometimes and he would he would he would hurt me, and he was about to hurt me a lot. Very, very soon. And we had verandas. I lived at 192 Lawler Avenue, and I think he lived at 198. And we had high porches because of the snow. And we had slats underneath so that there was dirt under the veranda. And these slats helped hold the porch up. And I would slide my stick in there because my mother wouldn't let me bring my hockey stick into the house. So one night, Mel and I finish, and I've just totally drummed him, Right. And I'm good night. I'll see you later. It's dark. We played till dark under the streetlight. I put my stick in there, and he leaves. I wake up about one o'clock in the morning, and I have this awful feeling. Something's something. I can't sleep. Richard, it's just weird. So I go downstairs and I reach under because I don't think I'm going to find my stick. And there's my stick. So I take it out and I scamper up to 198 Lawler Avenue and I reach under the veranda of his place and pull out his stick <laughs> and I take it back and I stick it where my stick was, put his back in there and I go to sleep. Well, about 730 in the morning, I mean, we he's at the he's standing out in front by the car, just looking at me with this big grin in his head face, and he says, okay, grab your stick and let's play hockey. So I said, okay. So I reached down. What do I pull out? A foot and a half of stick. And I hear him starting to cackle away. And then I pull out another foot and a half of stick. He sawed it in pieces. So I said, well, wait a minute, I'll go get my stick. And I run up to his place <laughs> oh, no. grab his stick. And I bring it down And I am so elated. And he smashes me right in the face. I almost lost a couple of teeth and I was bleeding. So I rush into the house to wash up. And my mother screaming that get me to quit that stupid game. <laughs> oh, so, so that was that story.
1: The classic, that's a classic <laughs> hockey story. The scoring machine, you called your stick.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's right of Tom, St- Tom Sawyer. It is. And painting the fence.
1: <laughs> now, I, we've, we've got about five minutes here before the break. We can start the story. And if we need to carry on after the break, we will. But um, because you had immigration problems with the U.S. And you were desperate to get back to america because that was your destiny mm. and because you were you had two felonies uh, here in canada and and uh, and so forth it didn't look good for you your lawyer told no you.
2: he he was an immigration lawyer himself at one time he said you have two separate felonies at 16 years of age and you cannot change the law they're not what happens you have to get permission from the consul general to ask immigration to re-enter So it's a two-stage process, he said. You'll never get a yes because they will never change the law. And my going to the law libraries, I, I, you know what? I'm going to we're going to finish this story later because this is very important. I want to talk about how I lost my belief in God at twelve years of age, but how I ended up praying. When I wanted to give it, it's like they say, you know, every soldier in a foxhole is none, no atheists in foxhole. That's right. So, but let me, let me, let me, let me start the, the story then is that uh, I, I was convicted with mail along with two separate felonies on this one night. I, uh, uh I, I, I was deported or kicked out of the country the second time when I was about 27 years of age, and i just come back from England where I went to track down my father. I my, found my father, and that wonderful, interesting, heartbreaking story is also in the book. But when I came back, I got into another argument with another young accountant. And the young accountant stopped me when I was going to my, I, I was now in a, a really nice, uh, 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 I had a really nice apartment. Above Mort Lockman, who was Bob Hope's head writer, right. who became a big fan, as you will see in the book, and helped me a lot. And and, and I was working as a, a, a waiter in an Indonesian restaurant at the time. And I'm going into my room, and this young guy, again, he was about 28, really nice looking. I used to call him and his wife Ken and Barbie because they were both beautiful. She was a blonde. And he asked me what I thought about this Castro business. What do I know about Castro? And he said, you know, the guy's a commie, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I knew a lot more about American politics by this time because I used to read I.F. Stone's Weekly and a fellow named Haskell Wexler, a an Academy Award uh, cameraman, had me house sit for him once. And he was a communist and I read his entire library. So I knew a lot as a kid. And I was explaining to him, listen, Jack, he's, he, he wasn't a commie because Jack Parr had him on his show and Ed Sullivan and Castro went into Harlem and he ate chicken with the people and 20,000 people showed up. I said, so he wasn't a commie, he was a revolutionary. And he's talking about it, he's a commie. And I said, you know, it's all follow the money. He didn't become a commie until he nationalized the refineries in Havana. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, he said, if you're going to have to have a revolution, it has to be an industrial revolution if you're going to live in a modern society. And I said, America was selling him oil at $3.20 a barrel. And the Russians offered him oil at $1.85 a barrel. If you're a businessman, whose oil are you going to buy? You're going to buy the Russians. But the refineries were American, and they refused to refine it. And so Castro said, I either have a revolution or I don't. But he sees the refineries. Now, I said, you're an accountant. You know about money. Nobody knows that Fidel Castro paid the oil companies back. And you know how he determined what they were worth? Their income taxes. He got copies of the income taxes that the oil companies paid to the United States government or really to the Federal Reserve as interest for the money borrowed by the United States government to fight these fake wars. So they got paid. And then the King Brothers Ranch in Texas owned most of the farmland in Cuba. So they couldn't grow a potato unless they wrote to the King Brothers and got permission. He did the same. He nationalized the King Brothers ranches and paid them the value that they said it was worth in their taxes. Only then did they call him a commie. Well, he was so angry at me, I said, listen, it's all in the congressional record. I've heard senators talking about it. I've heard Congress. I've heard people on television talking about it. Used to have a lot of intelligent people on television years ago in the United States. And he walked away. And right away, the FBI showed up again to
1: deport me. It's the the sequel, folks. It's the sequel. It's the sequel. And we'll pick up on that. Okay, great. On the other side, John Barber stays with us. Into hour two. We'll continue with uh, his remarkable life story, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, the bumpy lifetimes of the Canadian dropout who changed the face of American TV. Don't go away.
0: Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth... The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarratt on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me
1: into your home, long-haul truck, RV, taxi, camper, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, the electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome back, hour two of the Conspiracy Show. John Barber, my guest, and uh, what a delight, and what a remarkable autobiography. Your mother's not a virgin, the bumpy life and times of the Canadian dropout who changed the face of American TV. And we just want to pick up on uh, something we were talking about before the break at the top of the hour. Childhood friend Mel Nixon, and you came back after being deported for the second time from the United States. And, of course, you wanted desperately to get back into the U.S. And, uh, well, t- tell us why you turned to Mel Nixon as a possible solution to your problem.
2: Well, because he was my co-conspirator in the crimes. But I, I'm going to tell Richard this story, which you will hear. And I have never, ever, ever told this story. I put it in the book. And the reason I didn't tell the story is because I mentioned Mel Nixon's name, and I'm sure he's probably passed away by now. But I started to say earlier that before I get to that, I want to touch on the fact that I had uh, lost my belief in God when I was 12 years of age. And if I, I thought I was an agnostic or an atheist until I wanted to get back in the United States, and I needed some help. But in any event, when I was 12 years of age... Uh, the only person I know who had a family together was a fellow named Don Lee. He lived on Scarborough Road, and they were near a Baptist church, and that's probably why. They lived there, and I went to them one day, and I didn't phone. And the reason I didn't phone is because they might say, don't come over. So I just showed up, and I asked Mrs. Lee if they would adopt me. And she said, John, don't be silly. You have a mother. And I said, no, you want to come over to my house and I'll show you. She's not there. I don't have a mother. She's in Buffalo with another uncle. And mm-hmm. uh, and I meant it. But she giggled because she thought I was telling jokes. But I wa- wasn't telling jokes. She said, no, we can't do that. But um, would you uh, have you been in church often? And I, I said, I think. I was either, I don't know, uh, maybe I was christened in church. I don't remember, but I never go to church. She said, well, you, you can come to church with us if you like, and I'd love that. So she handed me a book. I said, what's this? It's the Bible. She says, this will help you. You go home and read the Bible. Well, I took the Bible home. Not only did I read it, I memorized it from Genesis to Revelations, and when we went to her church, this wonderful minister had a moment of private prayer. He would stop everything, and he says, it's time for private prayer. You take a minute now. You're in the house of worship. Talk to God with about whatever you want, and of course, you know what I want. I want my father to be home, so instead of rushing out with the leaves, I'd rush home every day after praying, them, and I'd literally open the door the first two or three times, holler, Dad, Dad hoping he's there and he was never there. And I did this for 13 weeks, and I thought, this just is not working. So the 13th week, he says it's time for private prayer, and it was time for me to walk out. So I got up. Everybody saw me as I went out, and I went sat on the stairs outside because this just wasn't for me. Well, he obviously saw me. So when church was out while I was waiting for the leaves, that's all I was waiting for, he came out, He came over to me, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, "Son," I heard the word son, and I felt a touch on my shoulder, and I almost cried because nobody had ever called me son, and nobody had ever touched me. And I just looked up, and I said, sir, this isn't working for me. He said, what isn't working for you? I said, this prayer business, you know. I don't pray in my bed anymore because I wet the bed. I don't want God to know that I'm praying in a urine-filled bed and I'm in the house of the Lord. I come here to pray. I go home and my father is not there. It's not working. I'm giving up on it. And he said to me, John, you must trust, you must believe in God's will. And I said, I don't think I'm in it. (laughs) Well, everybody started to laugh. I mean, I don't know where it came from. So, you know, I saw that's that's what ended it. And not only that, that's when I totally deleted all of my family. I figured, you know, somehow or another, I'm cast adrift in this universe, and I'm blessed by nature with this brain that makes me a survivor of some sort. And that's what I was going to live with. Anyway, the law is in the United States would not allow anybody— you have to get permission. From, you have to get permission from the consul general. It was on Spadania Avenue at the time to ask permission to even ask immigration to come back. My a lawyer's name was a lawyer named Kaplan who used to be a lawyer with the immigration service. I had the best lawyer in America. He said, "John, you cannot make it. They're not going to change the law for you." And I said, "Well, I went." When I was living up here again, when I was deported, I'm in this small little room and I used to go to the YMCA to exercise. And they had this little, they had this little chapel, little tiny chapel. And there's a cross in the chapel. And I go there by myself. Now, I never said it out loud, but I was praying in my head not for the laws to be changed, not for some congressman to find me and sponsor me like they did German Nazis, spies, <laughs> you know. I said, just give me the strength or the intellect to find a way to do this. And then it came to me, as if by divine intervention, I would make those two crimes part of one crime. And so I I wrote up a a paper describing how it happened is that the first crime was set up to make way to break into the store in Kingston road to set up a bigger crime. And then the only one who was with me was Mel Nixon. And I thought, well, how can I find this guy? And what I did as I looked in the, in, in the, uh, in the white pages and there was, Nixon, one ninety-eight Lawler Avenue. I called, and this girl answered, and it was his sister. And we was we were like little spin the bottle lovers when we were kids. And I asked, "Where is Mel? Where is Mel? Is he around?" And she said, "He's not going anywhere." I said, "What do you mean he's not, he's in prison in Sudbury?" I said, what, what do you mean he's in prison in Sudbury? And she said, he was more of an idiot than you. At least you ran away from the country. This idiot. He joined the Army. He became a Canadian war hero. When he came back to Toronto, they had parades honoring him. They put stuff on his lapel. It's in the newspapers. And I said, you know, I thought I heard something about that. But then why is he in prison? Did he go AWOL? She said, no, he took one of those machine guns they give him, and he went in a bank to hold it up, and they caught him, and he's serving like 20 or 30 years in Sudbury. I thought, oh, my God. And I said, you know, I've got to talk to him. She said, well, I'm the only one who talks to him. His parents don't talk to him. His friends don't talk to him. I'm sure he'd love to talk to you and find out what you've been doing. I heard you got kicked out of the United States, too. So you guys are a pair. So she arranged for me to go to see Mel. I took an all-night train to Sudbury, and there was Mel in his uniform. And he looked still like Tyrone Power, this great, these movie star teeth and the Jack Black hair. And he was so happy to see me. And I was heartbroken because this guy's in prison. And here I am going to ask a favor. And my problem is nothing. So I let him talk about his life and what had happened. So he asked me what I want. And I said, this is the paper that I have written up that tells the truth about this crime that we committed when we were 16. He said, listen, I got a better idea. I'll take the whole blame for it. And I said, no, you won't, because you're doing 20 or 30 years. They know you're lying. I just want you to verify what I'm saying is the truth. And he said, are you sure? I'll be No, you can't do that. I want it. It has to be truthful. So he said, "Okay, give me an hour. So he wrote out almost He sort of copied what I had written. And he had he had it notarized by the warden and they gave it to me. When I went to see the count, my my uh, my lawyer called me from Los Angeles. Said, "You're set to see the lady uh, on a Thursday." And I went in to see her, and I'm a nervous, nervous, nervous wreck. I can never sit when I'm nervous. I'm pacing. And any event, what I had learned, Richard. At the law libraries, I memorized the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. I knew how many senators there were, how many congressmen, the capital of every state, every single war ever fought by the United I knew everything about American history. I could have been a professor at the University of Toronto. I was not prepared for the one simple question she asked me because— when she looked at all the papers, and she never smiled. She was, she was a handsome lady in her early 50s in a beautiful blue dress suit. And she looked up at me, and she said, Mr. Barber. First time anybody called me Mr. Barber because I'm 29. Why do you want to go to the United States? And I wasn't prepared for the answer. And then all of a sudden, I opened my mouth, and out poured all this stuff about the United States is the only country in the world made up of every other country in the world the United States is the only country that's planned on a set of laws, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. You have Thomas Jefferson, the most intellectual president of the United States, writing the Declaration of Independence, and then they have the Bill of Rights. But guess who the intellectual founder of this country is? The son of an English bootmaker, a poor kid named Thomas Paine, who writes Common Sense and sells 50,000 copies and gives them to George, all the money to George Washington Washington to feed his soldiers. And I go on and on. I sound like Jimmy Stewart in a Frank Capra movie. And when I'm finished, she just looks at me. Nothing, nothing's coming from her. And then she says, John, I wouldn't want to be the one to stand in the way of your American dream. Mm. Uh, I'm almost crying now thinking about it because it's the first time I ever really cried. I mean, tears poured down my face. And then I went outside and I couldn't get on the bus or the streetcar because I was so excited. I was jumping up and down and I was screaming and running up the street like a madman. I got into the house and I jumped on my bunk bed like it was a trampoline and I'm screaming, I'm screaming. And then I finally called Mr. Kaplan. And then the first thing he says, you're kidding me, is what he says. He says, now get your passport. I said, no, they just gave me permission to ask to get the passport. He said, John, get your passport. You are coming to the United States of America. And I got to tell you something. The only way you got it is I can see your future. You're going to end up with a talk show because only a talker could have mm. talked his way into the United States.
1: Wow. And you, I got
2: my green card.
1: Indeed, you did. And we got real people <laughs> and a that, lot more. And,
2: and that came about by accident in 1977. I was handed my citizenship papers by United States Senator John Dunney.
1: Ah, all right. Um, we, we will, I promise, people listening want to hear about Jim Garrison and JFK, and we, we will get to that, I promise. And we'll bring John back. Uh, but... I, I want to talk just very briefly, and, and maybe, I don't know, we, I, I hate doing these word association things, but I just, you, you, have, you have known and befriended and rubbed shoulders with and worked side by side with so many greats. I just want to mention some names, and uh, you know, you, you, you did a lot of uh, work in, in stand-up comedy, and, and um, you know, you knew the greats, from Dick Gregory and Mort Saul, and of course the great Lenny Bruce, who I know was was a personal favorite. Just tell me some thought your thoughts about about Lenny Bruce.
2: There is, you know one, I'm glad you asked that question, because uh, I've had a couple of people ask me, you know, it's your book, but what is the best thing about your book? What do you like best about your book? And Richard, uh, two things I love the most about my own book is that uh, my f- f- favorite American writer next to Mark Twain was uh, Ben Heck. Ben Hecht wrote, *A uh, Child of the Century. Ben Heck was born in Racine, Wisconsin, and he didn't know he was Jewish until the Second World War started. He ran away at 16 like me, and he wanted to get into the circus, but ended up working at the newspaper. He became Chicago's top columnist. He became New York's top columnist. He and, and Charles MacArthur wrote Front Page. And Ben Hecht became the highest-paid screen- screenwriter in history. He invented Scarface with Paul Muni. And he wrote Gone with the Wind in 12 Days and never read the book. He only read a 30-page synopsis. And the and the last part of his book is called the, Com- the Committee. He became the first propagandist for the non-existent state of Israel. And the book alone is worth the, his participation in the birth of Israel and the birth of uh, Zionism. I mean, it's phenomenal, but no chapters. It's all a series of columns like he was still doing. Well, that's what I did. And if if you want to, let's say you're going to bed at 11 o'clock at night and you want a great read and you want to smile and you want to learn something. Okay, I was the first person. I was the original host of the Gong Show. Oh, Chuck Barris. Oh, God, I'd like to know that story. You open up and there are five or six pages. That's all you have to do. Find it in the front because all of the titles of the chapters of the columns are there. And then Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce was, along with Bill Hicks, the only comic I ever knew who had sex appeal. Comics don't have sex appeal. You know, some women are attracted to them because they're attracted to power but they were attracted to Lenny and Bill Hicks because they truly had sex appeal. And and I was a, a huge admirer of Lenny's. I knew his mother very well, but I didn't know Lenny well at all. And uh, Lenny was uh, arrested for what they called obscenity. And the tragedy about the trial in Chicago, and he talked about it a lot on stage, is that the cop who went to see his act Memorized his act so he could perform it for the jury and they wouldn't let Lenny perform it. So the cop was so bad doing Lenny's act. They found Lenny guilty and they deprived him of a cabaret license so he could not earn any money. But the reason they attacked Lenny is because he attacked organized religion. He attacked organized politics. He was attacking the government. I mean, he was, he was absolutely and totally, totally brilliant. So there was a club in San Francisco that let him work. It was called the 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 blue. It was a blues club. And he was almost like when he would talk, it was like listening to verbal blues. But most of it was about his act. And my wife knew him. And Red Fox became my mentor when I started doing stand-up, and Dick Gregory did the liner notes to my first album, which it's called, It's Tough to be White. So my wife took me to see Lenny. Now, I loved his early albums, but his early albums were all clean, and they were hilarious. How to make a black feel comfortable at a party and... uh, uh, the Lone Ranger. is Lone Ranger is just a classic work of comic psychology. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. But he wasn't doing that anymore. He was just doing his the court stuff. So he told Sarita, he said, Oh, I'm so glad you got brought John because I called my mom and said, You know, would you put me in touch with John Barber? I'd like to talk to him. So uh, do you mind if I talk to your husband? So we said, no, honey, I'll meet you at home. So she lived in San Francisco. She went home. So Lenny and I went for a walk at midnight in San Francisco around North Beach, the Italian district. And he unloaded the story of his life about how he if he had it to do over again, he would do it all over again. He didn't own a car He didn't own a house. He was desperately in debt. And at one time, he had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. But all all of this stuff went to to lawyers. And uh, he asked me about my album. He said, it's really funny, that tough-to-be-white stuff. And he said, you know, I used to work in a burlesque club, too, because I worked my material out clean in a topless club because there was no place else to work. So that's what I did while I was preparing material for television. And, uh, I said to him, uh, and then he said to me, John, you know, I'm working on some new stuff. Would you come to my house? And I said, sure, I'd be loved to, but I'm going to bring three. He said, that's fine. So a couple of later, late days later, we went to Lenny's house, and it was an absolute total mess. And there was stucco peeling off of the wall. It was he was walking around barefoot, and there were audio tapes all over the place. And he put one in to play it. And he said, John, I want to do this, and it was more court stuff. And I stopped and I said, Lenny, excuse me, if I want court stuff, I'll go to see The Merchant of Venice. Okay, <laughs> there's no better court stuff than that. And he laughed. And Sarita said, Don't talk to him like that. And and Lenny said, That's why I want to talk to your husband, because he know he's a critic. I'll know he'll gonna tell me the truth about what it is that I'm doing. So I said to him, Len, I said, you are truly, truly funny. And then I ran off all these classic routines of his. He was opening at a a place in Huntington Beach was like a warehouse and it had sawdust on the floor, but they were going to book him for about 45 minutes. One of the few, it was a, it was a, it was a contemporary, you know, folk club is what it was. So he was reduced to that. I said, just do your clean stuff, Please. And then he said, if I do the clean stuff, nobody's heard it. I said, that's why they laugh, because it's fresh, for God's sake. So he said, will you and Sarita come to see me? And we said, yes, we'll come to see you. So we went down down there. I think it was called the Golden Bear is what it was called. Yeah. And then it was all sawdust. It was like a a hanger and the the stage was all wood in the corner. And the guy just introduced him saying, ladies and gentlemen, Lenny Bruce and the place was wall to wall. It was just Pat and was just his solitary name on the marquee. There was a huge ovation. He was scheduled to do 45 minutes. He did nothing but his clean material. He was on for almost an hour and a half. They did not want him to leave. So when it was over, Sarita and I tried to get into his dressing room. Of course, when you're a star now, you can't get in anybody's dressing room. He saw us, and he waved, and he thanked me very, very much, and he said, I'll see you you again soon. And a couple of days later, his picture was on the front page of the L.A. Times, there he was naked on the bathroom floor with a, a hypodermic needle stuck in his arm that the police department had stuck there to as a warning to anybody else who wanted to question uh, the powers that be in the United States of America.
1: He was radioactive, to say the least. All right, we'll come Great back. Great phrase. We will talk uh, about more of John Barber's career, but we'll also get to the garrison tapes when we come back. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us.
0: Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serin from Zuma Radio, AM 740.
1: And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. The godfather of reality television, creator, producer, co host, writer of the trend setting hit Real People. Standing by, first off, let me thank my technical producer, Owen Wolf. And uh, just a quick reminder, if you haven't checked out my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, if you can't get enough of the Conspiracy Show once a week, you can always check out the podcast. drops every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And you can subscribe and listen at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. One other short note before we get started, and that is on Saturday, October the 26th, I'll be hosting a a presentation, a workshop, call it what you will, on reverse speech, featuring the discoverer of reverse speech, and that is David John Oates, coming all the way from Australia, and that will be taking place at the Metamorphosis Greek Orthodox Church here in Toronto, 49 Donlands Avenue. Just steps from the Donlands subway station. That's Saturday, October the 26th from 2 to 4 p.m. More information forthcoming at... RiverSpeech.ca, and I hope to see you there. All right. As I mentioned, a real television pioneer uh, standing by. He's really, he's done it all. He was a stand-up comedian. He's a writer, producer. He's a documentary filmmaker. And he has just recently, actually, I think it came out on his birthday, released a, a memoir, a biography, an autobiography called Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout, who changed the face of American TV. And it's a great delight to have in studio for the full two hours, John Barber. John, thank you so much for being here, and uh, and welcome back to Hogtown.
2: Oh, it's funny that you said it was Hog-t- Hogtown, because I was going to say I left here when I was... 17 years of age, become a professional gambler in the United States and deported back here again when I was 17, went back in there again and was sent back again. And when I was 29 years of age and it was called Hogtown at that time, and I never came back again again until the late 60s when I was a regular on the Merv Griffin Show, and I opened for this fabulous girl singer named Marilyn May right down the street here at the Royal York Hotel. Mm. I am so thrilled to be here because I'm such a fan of yours. As you know, I live in Las Vegas, but I love listening to your show, and I spend more time listening to radio than I ever do looking at television. And, and it was really nice to do Called me the Godfather of Reality Television. That name was given to me by the very best critic in uh, in America. His name was Gary Deeb, and he used to write for the Chicago Tribune. And he said of television in the mid seventies, he says television is the only business in America where competition does not improve the product. <laughs> but he knew when I came, I came. I went uh, back to Chicago for a couple of weeks to fill in for a guy that used to host the morning show. His name was Steve Edwards, and he moved on to host uh, the show that I had created in Los Angeles called uh, AM Los Angeles. And I talked to him about how I wanted to do stories about real people on television, because, of course, what, one of my heroes was Studs Terkel, mm-hmm. who wrote Working, and he was from Chicago. My, very, my second favorite American writer was Ben Hecht. My favorite, of course, would be Mark Twain, who said, if voting made a difference, they wouldn't let us do it. <laughs> but in <laughs> any event, uh, I, I mentioned that to him, and I quite accidentally, you're going to find out, Richard, as you get into the book, That a lot of the really magnificent things that happened to me, getting real people on the air, was a happy accident. Um, Becoming the private writer to the most powerful entertainer in the world, Frank Sinatra, for four years was a happy accident. And then more important than that, becoming the Boswell to Jim Garrison to tell Jim Garrison's story. I was the only one to whom... He told his story in ten years following the loss of the Clay Shaw trial, but he indeed did not lose that trial, which we I hope we will get to in in the in the second hour. But everything that's happened to me has been almost as though it's been preordained or divine intervention. And that's a very strange phrase for me to use, Richard, because I'm a non believer. But same thing. Joseph Campbell once said, the guy that wrote Power of Myth, if you follow your bliss, doors will open in the universe that you don't even know exist that will come there to help you. And that has happened to me all of my life. All these beautiful things that were accidents and all the disasters in my life, Richard, were those things that were well planned.
1: Although some of those doors at the time must have felt like trap doors. I I, I want to talk to you. About your early days in Toronto and just uh, people listening at home, we're going to spend the first hour talking about your remarkable, your early years, your, your storied career in Hollywood. In the second hour, we will talk about Jim Garrison and JFK. Uh, I mentioned trapdoors because you had more than your share. And, you know, we're sitting here in Liberty Village, just in the shadow of the CNE grounds, a few hundred yards, uh, to my left. You watched your father march off to war 80 years ago in 1939. You didn't see him again for 20 years. Tell me about a little bit about your relationship with your dad.
2: Well, wow. uh, I was blessed to have a father for a few years because I didn't really know that I had a mother for six years until he left. Uh, my father joined the Canadian Army in 1939 to go off uh, to the peace and quiet of World War Two, <laughs> he would rather face Germans than <laughs> with guns, than my mother with a beer bottle in her hand. But when I was a youngster, my father—I I was two or three, I guess—and he taught me the alphabet from A to Z, and he taught me to count from one to a hundred. So when uh, I went to Adam Beck at a, a, a Public School in the East End, and when my father took me there. I was to be enrolled in kindergarten, and he said, "My boy is too smart to be in kindergarten, <laughs> so they wanted to prove how smart I was, so he had me do the alphabet from A to Z and from count from one to a hundred, so I skipped kindergarten i didn't have to play, and then I skipped another grade um Without ever, ever studying, and then I uh, I skipped a lot of grades because it's not because I was intellectual, but because I was a real truant. I didn't really like going to school. But uh, when my father left, I suddenly—I was born in the Salvation Army Hospital as an unwanted child, and I didn't know how unwanted I was until I was born. When I first heard my mother, I thought my name was That's Enough. But <laughs> my my— and it, it, when my father left, my mother brought uncles home like grapes. They came in bunches to the house. And most of them came to booze with my mother or bed my mother. And quite two or three of them came to actually beat my mother. And one of them almost murdered me with a Christmas gift that my mother had bought me. She, she never wrapped a gift. It was just she'd get a white card and she'd write John. And mom on the bottom, and uh, she was a manager at a Kresge store, and she brought home a bow and arrow set because she knew I was a fan of, I guess, Earl Flynn and Robin Hood, and we didn't never had a tree, and she just pl- placed it behind a uh, a stuffed chair, and this uncle that came, his name was Garth, and he looked like Dennis O'Keefe in uh, the movies. I don't know if you know the movie actor Dennis O'Keefe, very nice looking guy, but his personality like was like Ernest Borgnine mm. in From Here to Eternity. When he was out of the house he was in uniform and when he wasn't uh, when he was in the house he was in he was in his underwear and he and his mother always drank and he ended up beating him unmercifully a couple couple of times. They had to run to, run to the cops. But anyway they, this day I didn't want to take the bow and arrow out. I knew it was there. And my mother said, Get your gift. And I didn't want to touch it. And he said, Get your gift. Get your gift, kid. And and I didn't get it. So I pulled it out and there it is. A real bow and arrow set, steel-tipped arrows. And he said, Let me show you how that works. And I no, 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 we'll go out in the in the yard, and you know it. So he grabbed it from me and he said, We're gonna play William Tell. And you're going to be William Till. I'm going to shoot an apple off your head. He took an arrow and he shot it right past me. It went right through the stuffed chair. And my mother started rocking back and forth like Ray Charles, screaming at him to stop. And he said he was having fun and he was going to. Well, I dodged around the house. The tables were broken. The glasses were broken. And I finally deked like a good hockey player and got out of the front door And I ran to the railroad tracks. My best friend at the time was a young guy named Mel Nixon. And if if, uh, Neil Simon ever wrote a Junior Sunshine Boys, it would have been me and Mel. And we used to always hop the freight trains. And once we went even to Hamilton, we couldn't get off the train. And I ended up in an empty boxcar. And I was there for two days. And Richard, I must tell you, it was the most peaceful two days of my life. And it reminds me a lot. I went, when they were recording, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner Mm. did a thing called the 2000 year old man, that great comedy album. Sure. And Carl says to Mel, Mel, what was the happiest day of your life? And Mel Brooks says, happiest day of my, my life was when I was in a rowboat in the middle of the Pacific. And Carl says, how can you be happy in a rowboat in the middle of the Pacific? He says, because a couple of minutes before that, I was in shark infested waters. Right, And I was the one who laughed the loudest because that brought back memory. And then the shock was that after I did that, I ran to the police station, which was on Main Street, right across from the library. That's why when I discovered there was a library in Toronto, it was right next to the police station <laughs> where I w- went off and in, Oh, There were two nice cops that came back to the house, and and I didn't want them to go to the door. They went to the door, and my mother, who had been severely bleeding two days earlier and black and blue in the eyes, she looked gorgeous when she answered the door, all made up, and Garth was all made up, and it was like that. And I spent most of my time after that on the streets from the time I was six to the time I was 17 when I left Canada, to go to become a professional gambler. Um, You know, the thing is, when you come from a broken home, and so many more people do, you do things to get attention, Richard, and they're not good things. They're always bad things. And uh, uh, Mel and I and some of them, I was sort of, the weakest one in the group, and I was bullied, and it was my mouth that came to my defense and to oftentimes I would say things without even thinking about them and I never knew where they where they came from. you know when I was a youngster nobody I never saw anybody fat ever and if you look at pictures of Toronto in the forties and fifties or New York or Chicago, street scenes. You won't see fat people. Well, I we had one fat people person, and he was my eighth grade teacher. His name was Hetherington. I can remember it like that. And he was a brilliant teacher. He was like an old English film excellent teacher. But he was the meanest human being in the world. He complained about everything, and he was so heavy, they had to make a special chair for him. And he wouldn't start teaching, Richard, until he griped about uh, he was griping about America a lot and he griped about Canada a lot. He griped about his life a lot. And this one morning, he was leaning down and rubbing his legs. And he said, Oh, God, my ankles are swollen. And I thought I was whispering. And I said, How can you tell? <laughs> oh, my God, you never saw a fat man. I'm so fat. He Tipped over his chair, ran down, grabbed me, took me to the principal. And they used to have corporal punishment in those mm-hmm. days. And they keep the strap, which was lined with steel, inside of lemon water. So that when it hits you, it really, really hit you hard. So I, what I ended up doing, staying away from home, all the money that I could steal. And I stole a lot, some of it from my mother's uh, purse. And I even tried to work. I tried to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to sell papers uh, but it got so cold, and I was distracted you won't you won't remember you're much too young, but anybody over fifty might remember that you had your milk delivered yes okay, and you would put out an empty bottle around midnight mm-hmm. with a quarter or a di- a couple of dimes and a nickel in it, so I'm delivering papers I see monies in the bottles, okay? So I tell Mel, Mel, I said, hey, I'm not selling papers anymore. Let's go out and clean up. So we went from Main Street to Scarborough Road at at 2 o'clock in the morning, and it must have been 10 degrees below zero, and our pockets were just full of change and sat down at the corner of Scarborough Road and Kingston Road under the lights so we could count the money, And all of a sudden, this car pulls up with bigger lights and two cops run over. In the meantime, Mel is running up the street and running away, screaming, he did it. He did it. So they track him down and they arrest him. Now, they find $15 in coins on me and they find nothing on him. They take us to the police department. And we're 12 years of age. And they call Mel's mother because they believe Mel's story that it was my idea in which it was. And then they called my mother. And I just wish they had never called my mother because she beat me all the way home. Now I could have outrun her. I could have outrun her as a 12 year old, but I let her hit me because I figured it would be over with. And it was the first time in my life when she was hitting me and calling me a bastard like my father, I saw tears in her eyes. And it really made me feel dreadful. Now. I thought I would never speak to Mel again. And about three days later, he came and he knocked at my door with a big smile on his face. I, he said, hey, let's go to the movies. Well, I lived in the Manor Theater for five cents on Kingston Road. I go mm-hmm. to the Manor Theater and I fell in love with Capra, Frank Capra movies. Jimmy Stewart, Mr. Smith Goes to Holly, uh, Washington, Made in Hollywood. And I just... I, I was kept alive by stories, stories in the movies, and Lorne Green was on the CBC at the time telling stories in this Orson Welles voice, and I don't know if you've ever heard of a writer named uh, Gordon Sinclair. broadcaster
1: I worked at that station.
2: Well, his son that was his son. Uh, or that must have been his no, son.
1: Well, Gordon Sinclair, he was gone by the time I got there. Yeah. Anyway,
2: well, yeah. Gordon Sinclair had written these wonderful books about real people and these short stories. And I was the one chosen in sixth grade to read the stories. Uh-huh. So as a kid, it was the reading and the listening to stories that kept me alive. But now that I'm older, it's the telling of stories that is keeping me alive. Anyway, Mel says, let's go to the movie. There's another Gary, there's a Gary Cooper movie and i i didn't want to have anything to do with him, but he had he looked like tyrone power, and he had this black hair and this movie star teeth and uh he he was just a totally handsome and endearing and Then he pulls money out of his pocket, and it was the fifteen dollars that was his half he had He had dumped it in a sewer kind of thing, so he was never caught with the money and he gave me seven dollars and fifty cents. He gave me half of his steel. We went to see the Gary Cooper film, and that's how I learned to whistle without putting fingers in my teeth.
1: Was watching a Gary Cooper movie, and and Mel Nixon would do you a big mitzvah a few years later, as we'll discuss a little bit later when you went to visit him in prison. Oh my! But, uh, you gonna, read the book? I, I I'm about halfway through it, and I got to tell you, it's absolute. I'm I'm just enthralled.
2: Oh, I must tell you, Richard. Uh, I just uh, you know I've never told that. That story to anyone. I only told the story in the book and I would love to
1: tell it again because it's a very, very Moving story. Also, as one Maple Leafs fan, hapless Maple Leafs fan, to another, we have to talk about your scoring machine hockey stick a little bit later as well. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You you pulled a bit of a fast one on mail. We'll talk about that as well. Your mother's not a virgin. The bumpy life and times of the Canadian dropout who changed the face of American TV. John Barber live in studio for the full two hours. Next hour, we'll talk about. Uh, Jim Garrison and JFK stay with us you're listening to The Conspiracy Show my name
0: is Richard Serrett don't go away where there's smoke there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio
1: we are back John Barber my guest your mother's not a virgin the bumpy life and times of the Canadian dropout who changed the face of American TV with us live in studio for the full two hours and this is his second time back in Toronto since leaving?
2: Yes, uh, yes uh, I, I left when I was 17, but I came back, as I said earlier, to be the opening act for Marilyn May at uh, the Royal York. And uh, this uh, Wednesday, I have a number of things to do. Oh, yes, and I have a book signing at your friend,
1: Oh, your Conspiracy Culture. Patrick yes, on, White. on
2: Sunday between 11.30 and 1.30, but I'm taking a whole day off Wednesday because when I left to become a professional gambler at 17, I deleted my entire family. That was my kid sister, and that was my uh, half-brother, and of course that was my mother. Uh, totally deleted them. I didn't see my sister Maggie for 50 years, but I'm a a sucker for good writers. And uh, a year and a half ago, she wrote me a magnificent 11 page letter about how she wanted to make contact with me again. So I went up to, uh, I went up to Vancouver and re-met my sister. And this Wednesday, I'm going to spend the whole day with her. We're going to go back to Adam Beck and the police department and the library and the rinks at St. John's Reformatory, where I used to spend most of my time in the Manor Theater. So Uh, I'm just loving being here and loving being here and telling stories with Richard.
1: uh, I just want to mention again, you mentioned the book signing, and that's happening Sunday, October the 6th at Conspiracy Culture, our good friend, uh Patrick and Kadena and that's at ten or sorry, sixteen oh five, sixteen oh five Queen Street West, booth number five. And uh again that's Sunday, October the sixth. And uh, do we have a time on that? Yeah, it's 11.30 to 1.30. 11.30 to one thirty. So, uh, I mean, I'm sure, you know, John is delighted to sign your copy of Your Mother's Not a Virgin, but he's also going to talk to you about uh, the Garrison tapes and JFK and, and all of that stuff that we'll, we'll cover off in the second Whatever
2: hour. they wish to talk about. I just love talking to people because everybody has a story or more stories. But you were mentioning trap doors, which oh. is a really interesting expression comparing it to my observation about uh, uh, Joseph Campbell saying, follow your bliss and doors will open as if by magic, what they did in my case. And you said, but they could turn into trapdoors," And indeed they could, if you looked into them as trapdoors. But if I looked into them as trapdoors, it's like giving up. And I couldn't give up. I kept going and kept going because if I stopped, I would cave in. I would die. I just, I could, I could not stop. And that's why, that's why I kept going. And between the ages of 15 and 17, as I started to say before, the money that I could earn and the money that I could steal, I became a gambler. And there were eight guys that we played with all the time. And it was usually a, a Friday night or a Saturday night. And the oldest was about 40 and I was by far the youngest. And I was always the first to lose and the last to leave. And I realized after about a year of this that I wasn't there to make money. I was there to make friends, Richard. But who would want to be friends with these people? Who would want to be friends with a John Barber, this orphan kid who's gambling and stealing? I wouldn't want to do it. So I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I better do it properly. So remembering that the library was across from the police station, I went to the library and I got two books. One was called uh, "Scarny on Dice and "Scarny on Cards. And now I don't know if I have a photographic memory, but I can remember almost everything I ever read. And I've literally read thousands of books and can still, uh, can still quote from them. So what happened is I realized that I did not have to be in every hand. I could sit out two or three hands. And then once in a while, if you're smart enough, you could bluff. In a period of two and a half months, I won $700 in 1950. And I got up to leave and I thought, I'm never coming back here. So the guys are all saying, I'm going to see you next week. Yeah. They wanted to get their money back. And I said, I'll be back to win more. That was another one of the lies I told. What I did is I went out and bought a beautiful blue suit. And that suit that you see on the cover of the book, is a very expensive blue suit. And that picture was taken in front of uh, Ben's, uh, uh, C- Bugsy Seagull's old Flamingo Hotel. Right, right, right. And that was after I left Calneva. You notice I also have a Stetson on. And the Stetson was so, it it, it was all hat, and no cattle. No. Oh, I yes. wanted people to think that, I, because just in the suit, I looked 16 or 17. I was 17, but I, I put the hat on, I'd look better. So what I did is I bought these 2 tone black and white shoes, got the Stetson also, got on the train, and I was on my way to Las Vegas, Nevada. I, I took the bus to uh, Niagara Falls. I crossed over, and the immigration officer saw this kid and said, uh, you look nice. What are you here for? I just said to look around for a day or two. I I looked around for about four hundred days until the FBI nabbed <laughs> me. But in any event, the train is on its way to Las Vegas and there's an accident of some sort and in northern Nevada the train is stopped. And Having had the law chase me, I think, oh, it's immigration, called ahead. And they said, "Is this Johnny Barber on the train. He's in the country illegally. We're coming to get him. So I hopped off of the train, delighted that when they showed up, they'd find an empty seat. And I go to a bus stop, and the nearest place I could go was Lake Tahoe. So I got on the bus. That's all I had was that, and then 600 and some odd dollars in my pocket. And they dropped me off in front of the Cal Neva Lodge. It was so beautiful, and Lake Tahoe looked like a miniature version of Banff National right, Park or right. Lake Lou. It was stunning. And I walked in, and it was like walking into the set of an MGM musical. I was looking for Mickey, Rooney, <laughs> Judy Garland. Everybody was dressed magnificently. They don't dress that way anymore. No, not even sweatpants. Oh, it looks like they've just come from Walmart. Yeah. They're going to see these big acts, and they're wearing shorts and sandals. It's dreadful. That, that's the decline of culture in America. But in, in any event... Uh, I walk around just drinking all of this in, and then I decide to go to the end of the table and start playing. So I knew everything about craps, and I'm doing it for about 20 minutes, and I'm holding my own. And once in a while, somebody glances over at me, and I think, oh, my God, maybe they can tell I'm only 17 years of age. Then pretty soon, some people at the bar are looking at my way, and then the dealers. And they put down the chips and the stick, and they look over. And I realize they're not looking at me. They're looking past me. And I turn around and coming through the glass doors, there is Frank Sinatra mm. with his overcoat over his shoulders like an Italian Superman. He's not he's not side by side. He is literally arm in arm with Sam Giancana, who was the mafia godfather Mm -hmm. of Chicago. And the reason this 17-year-old knew that, because it was on the front page of the paper that I left on the train, and they were flanked by three Italian Praetorian Guard. And everyone stopped at the marvel of Frank Sinatra, but more so me, because a week earlier, in the Manor Theater, I had seen— As the clouds rolled by, it was the biography of Jerome Kern, Mm -hmm. and Jerome Kern wrote the lyrics to Showboat, Right, and in that movie, at the very end of the film, there's Sinatra on a white pedestal in a white tuxedo singing, Old Man River, and I, there he was, walking right past me, and I, I was, it was shocking, and then 20 to 25 years later, again by accident, I became his private writer and close friend
1: for four and a half years. Amazing. Amazing. Serendipity.
2: And, and, and you know, you mentioned when we were off camera how a lot of these things that have happened to me almost happen as though they were in a novel or a screenplay because I bump into these same things. Right people later on in my life and again all by accident all of it
1: i want to, we'll come back to frank sinatra i hope we have time uh, I'll just, if not we'll have you back that's all uh but this this story really marks the the, the official official end of your relationship with your mother and that is you, at some point you're picked up by the fbi and you're sent to a terminal island Oh
2: my gosh! And, yes,
1: and uh, you you did six months there simply because well, it they... was longer than six months because I tried to escape. That's right. But uh, tell the story.
2: Oh, oh, oh it, it, how I got caught is I was staying at a boarding house, and uh, I met some really unbelievably fascinating people. There was a a Jewish watchmaker there in his forties. And I we used to sit and listen to him talk about FDR and the progr- pogroms in Russia that brought his family to the wonderful United States. Oh, I learned so much from him. And then we had a, a fellow named James Kirkwood who was an old-time silent movie star. And they were all They were all men. There were no women. But there was this young 28-year-old who was in a suit all the time. And he was the stiffest, most miserable human being I ever met. Now, at the time in the early 50s, according to Joe McCarthy, there were commies everywhere. Okay. And this young guy had a better red than dead pin in his lapel. And I said, you know, if I, when I got my blue suit, I put a rose in there. Why would anybody want to be dead for crying out loud? Because you, if, you know, rather, you can change colors. (laughs) but not if you're dead, you know, you're just dust. So I was always sort of teasing him. And he absolutely, and he called himself a young Republican. And I don't know anything, and I said, you know, that's the first time I've ever heard those two words in one phrase, because <laughs> they're all old Republicans that I know. Always and, the stand-up comedian. <laughs> yeah, always. And I, I, hadn't become a comic yet, but this kept blurting out, and people would applaud and laugh at the table, because it was like, you know, here we go, the Sunshine Boys going at one another. But he hated FDR. He said God crippled him because he's a comedy, commie, and gave him this ugly Eleanor to wake up to, to realize that he was a commie and, oh, just, he said the most vile things. And I said, you know, your grandfather, I'm sure, is collecting Social Security. Do you send a thank you note to the Democrats and FDRs? Family for giving you social security because, from what Lenny tells me, that saved uh, capitalism from socialism. Okay, he also uh, passed um, Glass-Steagall, which would prevent Wall Street from gambling with their funds, which caused the uh, which caused the recession in two thousand eight. Now we're going to have to take a break here, but when we come back, I'm going to tell you what happened. That the FBI showed up at the door.
1: There you go. He hears the music, he knows, we throw to (laughs) a break. (laughs) Makes my job very easy. John Barber, your mother's not a virgin, the bumpy life and times of the Canadian dropout, who changed the face of American TV. Stay with us.
0: Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free one 740 4740 Welcome back.
1: John Barber stays with us and for the full two hours and at the top of the hour, we're going to switch gears and talk about uh, the garrison tapes and JFK, uh, the American media. Uh, and and much more. But right now we're talking about his his early days, and uh, when last we spoke, just before the break, you were uh, you were sitting in uh, stir in Terminal Island, just well, off the coast know, of, we were at of the dinner, dinner table, and we were
2: having this argument with this young Republican. Oh yes, and uh, I said to him, I said, you know, you're putting down uh, Roosevelt. I said, but you know, I uh, every place I go in Los Angeles, I say roosevelt boulevard roosevelt golf course roosevelt high school and i said and it wasn't the democrats or roosevelt that caused the depression lenny tells me it was a republican named hoover and the only thing named after hoover is a vacuum cleaner well the whole table screams and applauds and he throws back a chair and he's gone Five minutes later, five minutes later, there's a knock on the door and the landlady opens the door. It's two FBI agents and they're asking for Johnny Barber. And I run up the stairs, get into my room, open the window and jump out on the roof. I'm going to jump and run away. There are more two more cop cars. Down below, waiting to catch, catch this Canadian commie who might be overthrowing the government of the United States. So they take me downtown, they fingerprint me, and it and they realize that I'm no threat to the United States of America. I'm just a threat to some shop owners on Kingston Road in Toronto. Right, right. If I, if I go back, so they turn me over to immigration. Uh, immigration s- tells me that we don't send you back by yourself. We wait till we gather a bunch of Canadians. They used to joke about this so that we get a whole flock of, of Canadians and then we fly these Canadian geese back home so you're going to be around here a long time. Well, I decided that I wasn't going to stay there, but they said the one way you don't have to stay long is we'll give you voluntary departure and you won't be on record as being deported. And I said, what on earth is voluntary departure? You pay your way out of the country so the government doesn't have to spend a nickel on you. I didn't have any money. I hadn't spoken to my mother in a year and a half or two years since I left. And I had no choice but to make a collect phone call to my mother. You needed $38. I needed that money to get on a Greyhound bus to come back to... Toronto, And I had no choice and I didn't want to call her. And now I realize the only reason that she answered and accepted the charges was to curse me the way that she cursed my father. Because when I told her where I was, she said, you deserve to be in prison. You're just a bastard like your father and you'll always be a bastard. And then I real, and then she hung up, and then I realized that's the only reason that she answered the phone to curse me. So I decided, you know, I'm not going to stay in here. And the guy who was next, and, and Mo, we were on the third floor, and there were about 50 cots, all occupied mostly by Hispanics, uh, an Englishman and a Frenchman, and mostly Hispanics. And the guy next to me was in charge of gathering the laundry every week and putting it down the chute to be cleaned. I didn't speak Spanish but I tried in broken Spanish and I felt like Sid Caesar on the Colgate Comedy Hour trying to paddle my, my way into getting into this basket And having him dump me down because I had cased the place, it was a minimum security terminal island, and it could have been a resort. It was right on the bay, so I looked out and I could see merchant ships. I'll swim out and I'll join the merchant navy. I don't care. And then to the left was 50 yards of grass and a guard who was half asleep and never had a gun. And I decided I was going to do it on a Wednesday which was, for some reason, a very busy day. I staked it all out perfectly, and two or three of my uh, uh, roommate's uh, friends were going to help. So anyway, I get into the basket. I go down the chute. And I don't know if I'm going to hit some men or not, but I hit these clothes and I jump up with the only, I'm not wearing much. And I rush to the door that leads to the bus. It's locked. I rush to the door that leads to the bay and the ships. It's locked. I do this a couple of times and I get so tired after half an hour, I sit down in the dirty clothes and fall asleep. And then seconds later, I hear a voice says, what do we got here? A live body and dirty laundry. What are you trying to do? I'm not going to lie. I said, I'm trying to escape. (laughs) So he said, well, come with me. Took me up to the office and they grilled me wanting to know who my colleagues were, my cohorts who conspired to help me do this. I convinced them that it was just me. So they took me back upstairs and sentenced me to an additional three months. And as I'm going to my cot, I say to the guy, it's Wednesday. Why are you guys all locked up? And this big grin in his face, kid, it's July 4th. Oh, no, everything's locked up. It's America's birthday. So I realized that I'm going to have to become an expert on American history, which I did later at the University of Toronto Law libraries. So anyway, I, uh, uh, thir- 30 years later to the day, I'm 47, and I'm hosting the most popular show in the history of television, which I had created called "Real People." And I get this letter, and this letter says, John, I know it's you. I know it's you. I tell my family, my wife, my friends, my kids, this is a guy that I dragged out of the dirty clothes at Terminal (laughs) Island. Please say it's you. So I wrote him back a really nice note, and I said, I'm so thrilled to hear from you and so thrilled that you caught me because I have you to thank for all this. Otherwise, I'd be in jail or I'd be in the merchant navy, and here I am standing next to Sarah Purcell wearing a brand-new, beautiful $600 Brooks Brothers suit. Sent him an 8 by
1: 10 glossy of me with Sarah. So there you go. That was No Trap Door. That was no trapdoor. All right. John Barber, stay with us. Back with more of my conversation with this television giant, TV pioneer, John Barber. And we'll continue to talk about his early life after the break. We'll get around to JFK, Jim Garrison, and your phone calls. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away.
0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads.